Praise the Lord. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Thank you for joining with us on campus, and thank you for those joining with us online as well as we worship the Lord together. Uh, Before we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let us uh, pray. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for this time to just uh, be under the the word of the Lord, uh, the truth that you have declared uh, to the nations. Lord, we thank you for the spirit of God that goes before us, revealing your truths to us, and the same spirit that gives us desire and power to live within those truths. Uh, Lord, as we unpack uh, the passage this morning, we just ask that you go before us. Uh, Lord, be gracious to us. Uh, Remind us of the beauty of our salvation and to know uh, that we are forever sealed by your spirit uh, in fellowship with you, in relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 will be in verses 13 through 16 this morning. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to look underneath the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible there. I'd encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 898. 898. Uh, Last week, uh, we started uh, our 2024 uh, sermon teaching on uh, really... uh, reminding ourselves to commit or recommit to the things that matter the most. Uh, In other words, uh, as we lay out 2024 in our minds and with our families and our relationships and the things that we want to commit to, sometimes we want to commit to a a new eating plan or a workout plan or uh, more consistency in a particular hobby or or maybe uh, you desire to connect with the Lord through reading through the Bible uh, every day. You know, all those things, they're great, right? Uh, And they're good. Uh, but, but I think it's important for us as a church is to not lose sight of the very uh, call that God has put on our life. And, and we saw last week in Matthew 28, uh, this amazing call of the Great Commission. And, and the beauty of the Great Commission is not, not just the fact that God gives, uh, that Jesus gives us a command, right? He does give us a command in the Great Commission. Uh, but it's far more than that. And I hope you began to see that uh, Last week, and, and if you've already seen it, that you're reminded of uh, the grace that is given to us because of King Jesus. Uh, remember the passage last week. The scripture says in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So this is how uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, lands the plane in Matthew's account of the gospel. So this is important. He says in verse 16 through 20, uh, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So even after Jesus died, right? His followers are obeying him. They're going to the mountain that Jesus told him to go to before he died. And it says, the scripture says, when they saw him, so the resurrected Jesus, the scripture says they worshiped him, but some doubted, right? And it's at this moment that you're probably thinking, after three and a half years of spending time with Jesus, uh, in the midst of your worship, you're going to doubt, right? And, and we're, you're probably thinking, if I was Jesus, man, I'm going to let him have it, right? After three and a half years, I've told you the same thing over and over and over again, yet you have doubt. The word doubt there is is a word that expresses hesitation, right? And and truth be told, you and I, as followers of Christ, guess what? In the midst of our worship, even today, as we think about the things in our life, the things that God is doing in our life, the sensitivity that he's bringing to our lives, maybe it's a relationship or a directional change for you, isn't there a sense of hesitancy sometimes? We hesitate a little bit, right? And here's what I love about King Jesus. In his grace, how does he address it? The scripture says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this great commission is, is laced with the king's grace, right? In the midst of their hesitation, he says, all authority has been given to me. To the very disciples that he has given his life to, he says, I, I have a plan for all the nations, right? To the ends of the earth. And in his grace, he says, I have, I've given my truth to you so that, that you will obey all that I've commanded. And the scripture says that wherever you go, in those hard places, those hard circumstances, those hard relationships, I, I will be with you wherever you go. What, what amazing king that we have. King Jesus. And it's based on that that I want us to look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5, where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I believe this ties greatly into that great commission. Because I know that, that this sanctuary and those joining with us online, brothers and sisters in Christ, desire to have their life mean something to not only impact this generation, but the coming generation for the glory of the Lord. And if that's you this morning, I pray that this scripture ministers to you. Again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says these words in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So from our passage this morning, I want us to look at three very important observations. The first one is this, the reality of who we are, the reality of who we are. Again, the context here is Jesus has gathered uh, people along uh, the, the, the mountainside, a hillside, and the makeup of that group is important because uh, the primary audience is that of Jewish background, Jewish descent. Uh, in, in the midst of uh, that, that gathering, there would have been those who have fully put their faith in the finished work of Christ. Like they're, they're putting their trust in him, Jesus. But also amongst that group, there, there, there is a, another group of people, people who have not done that yet. Maybe people who are uh, interested or maybe people that are just opposed to it, angry, right? And it's a reminder to us on Sunday morning when we preach God's word, guess what? The primary audience is the people of God, but we also know that in the midst of that audience, there are those who have never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But we, we want to preach the gospel to ourselves first, right? And I think that's important. And, and what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is he's declaring over uh, his people, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, this amazing statement. He says what? You are the salt of the earth. So he's talking directly to his followers and the you here is important because it's in the plural stance right y'all right that's how we say it in the south but it's very emphatic you and you alone are the salt 
of the earth. In other words, this isn't true of everyone. This is only true of those who have trusted in me. Now, the question is, why use the metaphor for salt? Well, salt is used for several things, right? I mean, we, we know that. Uh, salt can help heal wounds. I mean, I, long before the day of Abriva, right? I used to get cold sores all the time as a kid. I learned that if you put salt on it, it heals quickly. Now, it burns, don't get me wrong, but it heals very, very quickly. We use salt as a preservative, right? It, it stops or slows down the decaying process, specifically with meat. Uh, we know that salt has tremendous value. Uh, looking back in the Roman Empire in the day and age in which Jesus is uh, sharing the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Roman soldiers would, uh, would be paid a lot of times with what? With salt, right? Uh, you ever heard the phrase that so-and-so is worth their salt? That's where that phrase comes from because that's how a lot of times Roman soldiers would be paid. In fact, the, the Latin word for salt is where we get our English word salary. So there's some connection there. Uh, so we know that there's a, a value with the salt. Now in the Old Testament, and I think this is where Jesus wants us to go, the Old Testament we see in the book of Job that salt is used for, to flavor food. Uh, in 2 Kings, uh, salt was used to purify or to clean the water. Uh, in Ezekiel, salt was used uh, on newborn babies as, as a, a sign of purification. Uh, but that practice of rubbing salt on a newborn baby is even carried today in, in many cultures. Those cultures would, uh, would rub salt on a newborn baby to toughen up their skin, right? So that they would be ready for the elements that they're gonna face. Now that's interesting, right? Uh, but I think the most fascinating aspect of salt in the Old Testament, and I think this is where Jesus wants the reader to go to. Again, the primary audience is those of Jewish background, right? I think what's fascinating about salt in the Old Testament is this. It symbolizes the covenant between God and his people, and that is significant. The primary audience, again, has Jewish background. And so he's bringing him back to the Old Testament, and he's reminding them of the, this metaphor of salt is about the covenant relationship between him and his people. We see that first in Leviticus 2.13, how God is uh, purifying a people for himself. And how does he illustrate that? The word salt. Uh, in Numbers 18.19, it refers to God's promise of having a priesthood that will never end. Right? The scripture says in Numbers 18, verse 19, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you. And he's talking specifically to Aaron. Uh, and he says, and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due, it is what? It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And so again, God is saying there will always be a mediator between you and me, right? And so all this language and then the last time it's used in the old testament this covenant language is in second chronicles uh, 13 5 and if we remember second chronicles 13 5 is a picture of uh, the, the the royal the royal kingship right the, that of david and so the scripture is teaching us that god has promised a messiah that will come from who the line of david right king david and so this covenantal language this salt of the covenant and i think that's what jesus is talking about Jesus is saying on the Sermon on Mount that I, I have brought a people to myself, right? And it's, it's laced with what? The covenant of salt. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, he's not first telling us something that we gotta go do, right? That's important. 
when we read the scripture through only the lens of things that we must do, we're missing the beauty of who we are, right? And that's what Jesus is focusing on. We are the salt of the earth. And then the second metaphor is found in uh, verse 14, the first part. Uh, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So again, you is plural, y'all, right? And it's emphatic, you and you alone are the light of the world. Again, Jesus is talking about those who have trusted in him. Why light? How is light used uh, specifically in scripture? In the Old Testament, uh, light often represented the presence of God. Right? When David is up against his oppressors, against his enemies, uh, what does he lean on? He leans on the presence of God. In Psalm 27, verse 1, the scripture says, The Lord is my light and what? My salvation, whom shall I fear? So David is trusting in the Lord to guide and protect him. Uh, light is also used to illum illuminate things, right? Uh, it's very difficult to see things, and I know it more so as I've gotten older. When the lighting is not good, right, it's hard to see, right? Uh, last month, my wife and I went on a double date with a dear uh, a couple in our church, and we went to an escape room, and the very first task that you were supposed to do in the escape room was to do what? Find out how to turn on the lights, right? Without the light, it was very difficult uh, to process how to get out of this room. And finally we did, 30 seconds left or something like that. We, we barely made it, right? So light reveals what is good, it exposes what is evil. Light stands for godliness and truth. Light dispels darkness. Uh, light shows us the way, right? It, and it's the light that brings us life. When Jesus is uh, wrapping up uh, the great feast in John 8, what does he say in John 8, 12? He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am what? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light is the great reminder that hope has come. And how has hope come? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord says this in Isaiah 42, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, and I have called you. Now, this is a, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So the you here is Jesus. I am the Lord, and I have called you, speaking of Jesus, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a what? Give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The word covenant speaks of promise. And all the promises of God find their yes where? In who? Jesus Christ. And just like the salt, the light represents God's covenantal purpose and promise for his people. It's through Jesus Christ that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So the salt and the light tell us and remind us that before we go out and do anything, we must first and foremost be reminded of who we are, right? We are God's chosen people. When the apostle Peter writes to the early church, he says this in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race. That means you're greatly loved, right? You're a royal priesthood. You're a part of his family. Uh, you are a holy nation. You're set apart by God, for God, and for his purposes. Uh, you are a people for his own possession. That means you have been fully purchased by God, right? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So we have an opportunity to represent and proclaim the amazing gospel of God's grace. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. As the people of God, we've had, we have received uh, mercy on top of mercy on top of mercy. We are the salt and the light. This is who we are, right? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are the salt of the earth, the light to the world. We are his ambassadors, his representatives. And this is good news, right? Why? Because the world is full of corruption, full of decay, full of darkness. And God and his grace equips us, his church, his bride, and he sends us out as salt to hinder, to push back on the decay of this world uh, and as light to reflect his character and to show people the way of salvation. So before we do anything, God has declared over you and me because of our faith in Jesus Christ that we are the salt and we are the light. That leads us to our second observation, the difficulty that we face, the difficulty that we face. Let's be honest. It's not easy to live in that identity, is it? You know, we could sit here all day and talk about, yeah, we're the light, we're the salt, but it's not that easy. There are so many things that go against us, so many things that uh, we struggle with in this life, uh, and, and, and we can trace a lot of that struggle, if we're honest, if we really pull back those layers, we pull back the struggle of being uh, who we are, the light and the salt, because we're having an identity crisis, Right? We, we don't either, we, we, we hesitate on what God has said about us, right? That it's hard for us to trust that God says that I am salt and I am light, right? That I am his beloved child, right? And so we have this identity crisis that happens in life and yet God in his grace does something. Jesus addresses the difficulty that we will face and he does it in two ways. One, speaking on salt. He says in the second part of verse 13, he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So Jesus says it's possible to lose your saltiness. Now, I'm not a chemist, so if I had Marvin come up here, Pastor Marvin come up here, from a chemist's perspective, he would say that's not possible, right? Like salt is one of the most stable things that we have, right? So what does Jesus mean by this statement uh, that, that, that we have lost our taste the word lost actually means uh, to act foolishly. That's what the word means in the Greek. Uh, so to, to lose means to, that, that we're f- living foolishly. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. Remember, Jesus has declared us to be salt of the earth. We are to be his ambassadors, his representatives on pushing back and hindering uh, the evil corruption of this world and what happens to people. And it's possible for us as believers, followers of Christ, to live foolishly. Would you agree with that? And I'm not talking about the person sitting next to you. I'm talking about you. It's possible that even though we are the salt of the earth, we can live in such a way that we live foolishly. And when we choose to live foolishly, again, buy into the identity crisis, guess what? We will live ineffective lives. This is why Jesus asked this rhetorical question. If you choose to live foolishly, how can your effectiveness and your influence in this world be of any good? That's what he's saying here. And Jesus goes on to say, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, Jesus is giving the people there on that hillside an illustration that they would understand. You see, salt was extremely valuable. It was worth a great deal. And sometimes merchants, people that sold salt, 
they would get real creative. They would contaminate the salt so that they could sell more, right? Kind of like a filler, right? Y'all know what that's like, right? It's not the real deal, like Taco Bell meat, right, Jason? But the point is, they would mix this mineral dust, something that looked like salt, and actual salt together. So it gave the impression, it, it gave the perspective that you're getting the real deal. But when you tried to use it, it wasn't very effective, and it couldn't be used for what it was intended to be used for. And so what they would do is they would sprinkle the salt, the, the contaminated salt, along the pathway because it's what made the pathway really, really hard. And the same is true for us in many ways. When we begin to lose our distinctiveness as God's people and choose to contaminate ourselves with the things of this world, right? When we choose to act foolishly, guess what happens? Our hearts get hard to the things of the Lord, right? We get distracted, we get disoriented, we lose sight of what we were called to do and called to be, right? We see a picture of this in the Old Testament, uh, with Lot's wife, I think is a great example. God announced that he was going to judge uh, the city of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Not because they were just living sinfully, but because they had rejected the Lord. That's the key, right? They rejected the Lord. And, and God in his mercy says to, to, to Abraham first, but, but to, to Lot and his family, get out of there before judgment comes, right? I mean, that is the mercy of God. And here's what happens in the midst of while they're fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, while the judgment of God is being put down, the scripture says in Genesis 19, verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him, behind Lot, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So there's that salt language again. The phrase look back speaks of looking intently on something, right? Getting distracted, getting disoriented, losing track of who you are and where you're supposed to be going and what's most important in life. And what Jesus does, Jesus uses that story in Genesis 19 to really talk about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following the Lord. In Luke 17, verses 32 and 33, the scripture says, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife and how shall we remember her? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You see, Lot's wife faced the negative consequences of her decisions on losing sight of who she was because of the things of this world. Now, the question is, what did she long for? What was it that, that got her disoriented? What was it that got her distracted? Well, we don't know for sure. The scripture doesn't tell us that. But, but maybe she, she was stuck in the past, right? She couldn't see what God wanted for her in the future. And so it's that old life that kept drawing her back. Uh, maybe it's because she had a place of position in the city. It says that the, the, they were at the city gate, which was a place of leadership. So maybe and for her, it was, I don't, I don't want to surrender this place of prominence for this unknown future. But the truth be told, you and I, we can be distracted by the things of the past, right? The things that continually draw us in. And Jesus says, whatever you cherish most in this life, will have a profound impact on your life. Don't get distracted by the things of this world. When John writes to the early church, he says this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's the reality. We, we live in a system of the world that is opposed to God and God's ways and God's blessings, right? And who is the orchestrator of that system? It's Satan, right? It's the evil one, right? And what does Satan do to the people of God, the children of God? He puts temptation after temptation after temptation in front of you, right? Why? Because he wants to contaminate your effectiveness in this life, right? It's everywhere. All of us face that temptation just about every day. And here's what we find out about the system of this world. It never, ever satisfies, ever. But there's still a part of us, even as brothers and sisters in the Lord, that say, well, maybe this time. I'm going to go back to it again. I'm going to go back to it again. And if we're not careful, we will have an unhealthy cycle of constantly going back to the things of the past going back to the desires of the flesh. And guess what? We find ourselves being unsatisfied, dissatisfied time and time again. And when we live for the things of this world, things that are temporal and unfulfilling, and we lose out on God's blessing of being the salt of the earth. Speaking of light, Jesus says in Matthew 5, so this is the other difficulty that he addresses. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So in this verse, these two verses, Jesus is saying what? The purpose of the light is to what? It's to be seen, right? And, and again, he's using illustrations that the people would understand. In that day and age, they didn't have the type of lights that we have today, right? And so you can imagine uh, along that hillside on that day as Jesus is sharing the Sermon on the Mount, uh, gathered with him, specifically his disciples. Many of them were fishermen. They knew what it was like to be in the Sea of Galilee late at night, and they're trying to find their way. They're trying to find a landmark to give them direction. And what was, what was one of the ways that they found the landmark? What was one of the ways that they found their direction? The city on the hill that overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And on the city of the hill that overlooked the Sea of Galilee were many, many lights. So all those lights from the city were illuminating together and it was providing direction, right? I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to fly in an airplane at night, but it is pretty awesome to fly into a city, above the city, and you get to see uh, a city from a different perspective, right? Uh, even your own city, Charleston. If you've ever flown into Charleston at night, it, it's a whole new perspective. And the idea here is that, that the light is meant to be seen. Not just a city on a hill, but he talks about uh, a light to be seen in the house. I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I have a part-time job in my own home, and that's to make sure the, the refrigerator and the freezer door is shut all the time, right? And more than that, to make sure lights are turned off. I'm, I'm like the light police. Like you walk out for 30 seconds, the light has to go off, right? And it's like a full-time job. Uh, matter of fact, uh, last week, I think it was last week, we were cleaning the house. And, and we try to teach our kids that when you're dusting something, it's not just about going around the item. Uh, but you have to dust the item and you have to pick the item up and you have to dust underneath it. Is that good teaching? I hope so. 
And, and, our, uh, and Eli, our, our son, he was dusting a, uh, a table in the living room that had a lamp on it. And he picks up the lamp and he's looking at it. He goes, Dad, something's wrong with this lamp. Well, he was right. The, the cord, the power cord had been cut off purposely because it was plugged into a location in our living room where it was a tripping hazard and that thing got knocked off over time or every time. And so he was like, what's the purpose of this? I said, it just looks good. It just looks good, right? Uh, it, it was convicting for me because I want to teach my son that the purpose of the light is to what? To cut it on, right? The, the light is meant to be uh, plugged in. And so the darkness of this world needs the light of Christ, right? And God has chosen us to reflect his light in us and through us. And what good is a light in the house when it gets covered over? What good is the light in the house when it's not plugged into the Lord, right? That's the reminder for me. The amazing impact that light has in the darkness of this world and the face of our enemies reminds me of a story in the book of Judges. Uh, a little bit of context there. Uh, God's people were being uh, attacked and oppressed by uh, the Midianites. The Midianites were very large in number. Uh, they appear to be extremely powerful, uh, but, but when God is on your side, there's no army too big, no army too powerful for him, right? And so God raises up a man by the name of Gideon, uh, and God in his grace and his provision and his sovereignty, he whittles down Gideon's army to 300 men, right, against the mighty army of the Mennonites, and under the Lord's leadership, he's going to show them, his people, that I am stronger than any of your enemies. And how does he do this? Well, in Judges 7, 16, the scripture says, and he, speaking of Gideon, divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with what? With torches inside the jars. So lights, right? The scripture goes on to say in verses 19 through 21, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, again, they split into three different companies, a hundred each. Uh, those who were with him uh, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of watch. So this would have probably been somewhere around 10 p.m. to midnight. Uh, the scripture says when they had just uh, set the watch, so they're changing guard there. The Midianites are changing guard. The scripture says, and they, God's people, blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. What was in the jars again? The light, right? Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran away. Whose army ran away? The Midianite army ran away. And they cried out and they fled. So without lifting a sword, that's amazing. Except for the sword of their voice the trumpet in their hand and the torch in the other hand, they drove out the mighty men of the Midian army. The Midianites were so confused at what just happened, they actually turned on to one another and that's how they got killed. What is the point here? You think about that, just that picture in the, in the midnight of a, of, a, of a forest, if you will. 300 people gathered around with these torches in and jars, and as they slam those torches on the those jars on the ground, there's this big. I mean, that's pretty intimidating, right? And that's what God used in order to defeat the Midianites. He was showing His power. It's a reminder to us that a small light in God's hands has great power. Why? Because that's the light of Christ, right? John one five says, "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not." 
overcome it. By God's grace, Jesus, who is the light of the world, has given us his light so that in him we may reflect his light in the darkness of this world. But there's great difficulty with that. Why? Because there's a temptation to grab onto the things of this world. There's a temptation to hide the light. Anybody face that temptation today? The very light of Christ lives in you, and yet there's a temptation to hide it. And that's why I think Paul is reminding us in Ephesians 5, these words. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. So he's talking to followers of Christ, and this idea of partnering is not saying don't associate with those uh, that are unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't join in with them, right? Don't join in with what they are doing. Why? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, right? Because of Jesus, you have a new identity in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So Jesus understands our difficulty to be in the world, but not of the world, right? So salt can lose its saltiness. Light can try to hide. But we were reminded that who we are in Christ reminds us that what? We don't want our salt to lose its saltiness. We don't want our light to hide. So where are you struggling today? When you think about these two metaphors and the difficulties that we face, and we have to be honest with those difficulties because we're not thinking always in our new identity in the Lord. We're being drawn back to the old ways, the things of the world, the things of the flesh. So I encourage you to confess, repent, and have renewed trust in the Lord. And then lastly, the third observation, the response we should have, the response we should have. Uh, Jesus closes our section with verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So here's the command. So out of all that, there's one command. That command happens in verse 16. Let your light shine. And that command is birthed out of what? Your identity in the Lord, right? You are the salt. You are the light. Again, don't start doing before you start resting in who you already are. The scripture says that you are the light and you are the salt. Therefore, let your light shine so that all can see your good works. What good works? I mean, at the end of the day, the good works of Christ, they're endless, right? I mean, think about it. There are no ends to the demands that society can give to the church. We can exhaust ourselves doing all kind of different things, right? Great things, good things. People will always be hungry. People will unfortunately be neglected and abused in their relationships. Uh, people will always struggle with addictions, right? Right? And what the world needs, and this is important, because if we're not careful, we'll do what every organization does. The world does not need a, human, uh, a humanitarian effort alone. That's not what they need. They need a gospel presence. And that is a massive, massive difference. The church is the salt and the light. And so there must be a difference. There must be a gospel presence. And what is that gospel presence? You see, social change through the proclamation of the gospel is what is needed. Outward change without an inward transformation doesn't work and the church can choose to throw darts at every organization that comes to us about good things and lose sight of the best thing. And the best thing is the gospel. So what is the context? What does it look like? What are these good works laced in? This is important. The context, remember, Jesus 
just got finished talking about the Beatitudes, right? And then he goes straight into verses 13 through 16, salt and light. So let's talk about the Beatitudes for just a moment, real quickly. Matthew 5, 3 through 12, this is what Jesus says. This is how he enters into the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness snake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they are persecuted, the prophets who were before you. So when Jesus shares the Sermon on the Mount, this is, he's not sharing the Sermon on the Mount so that he can convince people to do these things. That's not what he's saying. Again, remember, he's addressing some of the religious elite of the day. Jesus goes on to say on the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness supersedes that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He closes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 that just because you cry out, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you're saved. He goes on to say, by your fruit, you will recognize them. He goes on to say, listen, you can choose your, to build your house on anything but the solid rock of Christ. And when the storm comes, not just the storms of life, but ultimately the judgment of God, guess what? If you choose to build your house on anything else but Christ and Christ alone, your life will crumble. What's the whole purpose of all this? Jesus is saying you can't live up to these standards. But in Christ, but in Christ, your heart has changed. What gives us the ability to realize we're not self-sufficient. What gives us the ability to live lives of humility? What gives us the ability to mourn over our sin and to thirst for goodness? What gives us the capacity to be satisfied in Christ? What gives us the capacity to show mercy and to have eyes of compassion to those who are hurting? What gives us the capacity to live life with great assurance and to have not only peace with God, but as long as it depends, as much as it depends on us to live at peace with others, what gives us the capacity to long for what is true and good and holy, what gives us the capacity that though in the face of great persecution, we can rejoice in the Lord. It's because we are people of God. God through Christ has changed our lives the Beatitudes aren't things for us to go out and try to find and secure on our own. The Beatitudes have been graciously given to us in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. I mean, think about the Beatitudes that we just read. In correlation to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. That's the good works that our world needs works that are done through the power of Christ in us. Faithful followers of Christ reflect the character of their father. So the good works are simply a response to God's amazing work of grace in and through our lives. The good works come because we are his and we are trusting and depending on him. And even when people and situations and circumstances tell us otherwise, we are trusting in King Jesus. You know, think about Daniel in the Old Testament. 
Daniel's like 14 to 17 years old, so he's, he's a teenager. And he, he was confounded with the difficulty of faithfully following this Lord or succumbing to the powers of this world. The scripture says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chef, or the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him not to defile himself. And so David, or Daniel was at a crossroads, right? He had a decision to make. Either I'm going to do what? I'm going to succumb to uh, this earthly king, or I'm going to hold true to my heavenly king, the Lord. Even in the face of great persecution. So much so that in Daniel 3, verse 17, the scripture said, this, this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And so even in the midst of great persecution, Daniel, along with his three brothers in the Lord, say, we're gonna faithfully follow him. The resolve by grace through faith begins with who we are in him. And it's a reminder that we cannot, we have to choose every day not to give an inch to the old self, right? Every day. Paul says in Romans 13, 14, but, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that new identity, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Why the resolve? Why is that important? We want to glorify the Lord, right? That's the point. Matthew 5, 16 closes with that. Show your good works so that what? So that people will see your good works and glorify your heavenly Father. When Peter is writing to the early church during a time of great persecution, he says in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Beloved, so he's talking to the church, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Is that your desire today? Is your response to the Lord a response of, I want to glorify you? Colossians three seventeen says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't really that kind of the heart of our response is a gratitude for what Jesus has done? The heart of a worshiper responds because of tremendous thankfulness for what Jesus has done. We give thanks because of God's work of grace in and through us. And because that is true, in every place of decay, in every corner of darkness, we want the light of Christ to shine. Why? Because we want the Lord to receive all the glory and honor. As a follower of Christ, do you know who you are? salt and light as a follower of Christ do you recognize the difficulties that we face the temptation to be contaminated by the things of this world the temptation to hide the light of Christ in this world Jesus understands that and Jesus addresses that listen it's rooted in your identity right and it's based on your identity in the Lord you can rightly respond that every good work that we do is only because of the work of grace in us and through us. And praise be to God, he gets all the glory and the honor.